So today we are starting a new series, a five-part series, exploring our core values as a community. And to do that, we are going to be looking at one of the most beautiful stories in the whole of the Bible, the, the, the story that has given us our name, Emmaus Road. Names are powerful. Names are, are very, very important in the Bible. They're not just random, but they, they, they mean things. Jesus renamed Simon as Peter. Uh, the book of Revelation says one day we will get a, a, a new name. Uh, and names are profoundly important. And so I love that we're called Emmaus Road, because as we're going to see over this five-part series, this story captures so many of our values, so many of the things we want to be like. And if we could live up to our name, that would make me really, really happy. So turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 24. We're going to read verses 13 to uh, 25. Luke 24. I'm afraid we haven't got it on the screen today. Luke 24, 13 to 25. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. We're going to think about that extraordinary verse in a minute. They were kept from recognizing him. Why? He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? Okay, so he slightly barged into the conversation, and uh, he said, what are, you, what are you talking about? They stood still, their faces downcast. You know that moment when you're walking along, and suddenly you stop, because you're thinking so hard that your legs have stopped working. They, they stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. You cannot tell me he didn't have a twinkle in his eye at that moment. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He, he was a prophet, uh, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. I bet you Jesus was hiding his hands at this point. But he, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Hopes disappointed. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they didn't see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he goes on to use the scriptures to explain about himself. These people talking about him but not recognizing him. And then, as you know, they're chatting away. They finally reach Emmaus and um, Jesus pretends that he's going to go on. Uh, but they say, no, 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 why don't you pop into our house? And so Jesus goes in. They break bread together. As he breaks bread, they realize it's Jesus. And, and some people think that it was just a sort of metaphysical revelation. Uh, but it's also quite possible that 
as he lifted the bread, he deliberately showed them his scars. And so it's the most beautiful story, and we're going to unpack it together. Um, Bill and Hannah and Miriam Swaffield are going to take us a little bit deeper uh, into the story. But uh, a little bit of context, therefore. Emmaus, uh, seven miles away, northwest of Jerusalem. Uh, about a two-hour walk, I reckon. Three, it's quite a fast walk, maybe two and a quarter hours walk. And so it's a, it's a suburb of the capital city. A bit like Guildford is a suburb of London. And uh, these people are commuting. They're walking home from the city. I don't know how long your commute takes each day. Sam, how long does your commute take? An hour and 20. I bet you've got that down to, to, to the second. An hour and 20 minutes. Well, these guys, you've got it easy. These guys, it's, uh, it's about a two and a quarter hour walk. You, do you walk? You, you, okay. Uh, he takes a chariot. His, uh, his company uh, sends him with it. Uh, and uh, so they're, they're walking home uh, from, from Jerusalem. And it's interesting uh, to wonder who the two were. We know one of them, we're told, Cleopas. Cleopas of Emmaus. And um, tradition has suggested the other person is another man, because tradition always suggests that men do everything. Uh, But actually, um, there's quite a strong evidence that it might have been a husband and wife team, because John chapter 19 describes a a woman called Mary, who was at the the crucifixion of Christ, who's described as Mary, the wife of Clopas, who's probably Cleopas. And therefore, we know that Cleopas of Emmaus had a wife called Mary. And so it's a bit of conjecture, but that's the realm that we're in. It may well have been that this husband and wife were walking home together from the events of the crucifixion weekend. It's a lovely thought, actually, isn't it? And so as they are walking, they are talking together. And uh, I want us to particularly focus on three of our values today. The call to walk together prayerfully. We'll see that they were doing that. To walk together relationally and to walk together missionally. Firstly, this couple, and I'm going to talk about it as if it's a couple, okay, but it might have been two men, we don't know, but the, the couple. By the way, notice they also go into the same home at the other end which obviously if you're two blokes commuting together, you normally go, see you later, John, see you later, and then go off to different houses. Anyway, uh, there there I leave my powerful exegesis. So they're, they're walking together prayerfully. They are talking about things that really matter together, and it is into that conversation that Jesus enters. There is something about bringing the things of the Lord into our relationships, into our conversations, that brings Jesus in. And then as we walk and talk in conversation with Christ, we find that that is the most beautiful picture of prayer. You know, I I grew up in a home where both my parents loved the Lord Jesus. I'm grateful for that. There was a time when I wished that, you know, I sort of had been a drug dealer and got saved at the age of 13, you know, or whatever. But, but I grew up in a Christian home. Sammy grew up in a very non-Christian home. I grew up in a Christian home. And as a result, um, our, our home was just full of conversations about Jesus. We talked over the meal table, you know, on a Sunday lunch. And, what, did you, what, did you, what did you learn at church this morning? I can't remember. Who was at church this morning? <laughs> Uh, you know, car journeys. It was a long car journey, you could tell, because my dad would pray before it. There was apparently no risk at all if we were just popping into town, but anything over about an hour and a half, it was, uh, God, would you keep us safe? And if I go over the speed limit, would the angels not fall off the roof rack? Kind of a prayer, you know. And and, um, just the Lord was in everything. 
And, um, you know, to this day, if you go to my dear old mum's house and she'll be listening to this, there are Bible verses kind of smattered subliminally everywhere around the house. And, 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 and I think I probably reached a stage when I, you know, I left home and I decided I was going to be a Christian, I was going to follow Jesus for myself, that I slightly reacted against all this talk of Jesus. And I thought, for crying out loud, surely Christians have got to be able to talk about something else. And of course we should, we should be able to talk about the extraordinary achievement of Japan, such a small nation overcoming South Africa. I mean, we should be able to talk about these things. We should be able to talk about great music. We should be able to talk about, you know, knitting or whatever you're into. We, we don't just have to all the time talk about Christianity. And so I sort of reacted against that, but I think I slightly overreacted. And if anyone ever mentioned Jesus, I sort of get, oh, you're being so super spiritual. And actually I kind of miss, and we're really trying to bring back into our family life and into our friendships, just talking about the Lord, because it is often those conversations that he steps into, as we see here. And there is something prayerful about it. Many of you know that... Um, I had a, you know, I'm not very good at hearing God, but um, every now and then he sort of jumps out of nowhere and speaks to me really clearly. And, and um, on one occasion he did that. And because I don't often hear God particularly clearly, it really caught my attention. But the thing God said to me was, look at that tree. It was clear as anything. Bang, came into my head as I was walking down the street. Look at that tree. It, was, it wasn't an audible voice, but it was almost like that. Look at that tree. And so I just froze looking at this particular tree, thinking uh, this is going to be my burning bush moment, you know, some great epiphany, or I'm going to rescue, it's going to be about to fall on someone, I'm going to rescue, the, you know. I'm staring at this tree, and absolutely nothing happened. Nothing, nothing, just silence. And people are walking past me awkwardly in the street, thinking I'm having some kind of episode, you know. And so eventually, just in case God had got distracted with events in the Middle East or whatever, I, I just said, okay, I'm looking at the tree, Lord. And I sensed him saying back to me, see, you get so intense about everything. I just thought it was a good tree. That tree. And so I found myself saying to God, nice tree. Good, great job on the tree, Lords. Here's the point. Your prayer life is at its best, not when you're praying about the big things occasionally, but about the small things continually. When your prayer life is a daily conversation, walking and talking with the Lord Jesus like these people on the road to Emmaus, it is at its best. That's how you grow in relationship with God. Not just crying out as we should for the crises in our world, for the building of the church, but when we just walk through the day saying, a nice tree, Lord. Oh, terrific sausages for dinner. Thank you, Lord. And he replies, I had a bit of help from an excellent butcher and a cow that was very committed, you know. <laughs> and also, if you pray about the trivia in life, you'll live with more gratitude because by, just think about it, if you only ever pray about big things occasionally, you'll only be occasionally grateful. God, crack the refugee crisis. It might take a little while. But if you pray continually about little things, you'll be continually thanking God for little things. And if you pray about inevitable things, give us this day our daily bread. And you go into the supermarket, a loaf of bread! Hallelujah, there must be a God. I prayed for bread, look, bread. You drive the atheist crazy. 
And so we see this beautiful image of prayer as walking and talking conversation with the Lord together in this story. We are called as a church to be a house of prayer for the nations. I can tell you that categorically. Firstly, because all churches are called to be houses of prayer for the nation. Jesus was passionate about that. But more particularly, we are deeply involved, as you know, in the 24-7 prayer movement. And we have this privilege of being right at the heart of it in many ways, with a vision to, 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 to pray and to resource others in prayer. We have people all around the world continually contacting us saying, help us with prayer. We know this is the key. We know that this is what it's all about. Knowing God, walking with God, learning to release his power through prayer, uh, encountering him, learning to hear his voice. This is the essence of all the other stuff. Help us to pray. And so we have the great privilege of helping others. And of course, we long to pray because as we see the problems in our world, as we think about our friends who are sick and suffering or those who don't know Jesus, something within us wells up and says, God, please help, please intervene. And so this is the essence. Everything we do in Emmaus is an overflow of the encounter with God that we call prayer and worship. Thank you to those of you who came on to pray for Alpha on Tuesday night. Amazing uh, night. Uh, we, we, we're, we're determined that in this new venue we're going to make an even bigger prayer room uh, and it's going to be more accessible than the one we've got at Allen House. We've got our next season of 24-7 prayer just coming up in uh, October and, uh, uh, sorry, in November 15th to 22nd. And can I ask you just to leave some space in your diary to be a little more available, a little more flexible. Don't overstretch your diary that week so you can come and spend time in the presence of God. This next weekend, CWR are running a, a national prayer we can 1,200 churches getting involved to pray uh, for your neighborhood, for your street, to take in uh, prayer requests. So uh, let's give ourselves to prayer. Secondly, uh, we are called not just to uh, walk prayerfully, but to walk together relationally, to walk relationally. And we see that this is a quintessential story of friendship, fellowship, and hospitality. The two travelers are in deep conversation, walking side by side. And then Jesus draws alongside them and gently butts into their conversation and they make space to draw him into their friendship. They don't get cliquey and say, excuse me, we're having a conversation here. They, they allow him in, they invite him in. It's so important if we're going to be a relational community that we won't just be so locked up in our little cliques, our little groups, our little family units that we don't make space to include others, to draw others in, to allow others to interrupt our friendship groups. Some people have got so many friends, they say, I've got no room for any more. Some families are so nuclear that it's like, it's like there's a drawbridge and they'll only let people into their home or into their family kind of when it suits them, you know, if there's a dinner party and there's canapes on the table and you've hoovered the cat. You know, we're called to allow people in. Is it the book of James that says, by welcoming strangers into your home, some of you have welcomed angels unawares. And in this story we see that they welcome Jesus unawares. Let's make space relationally in our lives. And Jesus noticed later in the story, he doesn't presume upon their hospitality. 
He, he pretends when they get to their house that he's, you know, he carries on. I'm off. Can, can you imagine if they hadn't said to Jesus, oh, come on in, have a meal. They'd have missed the big one. They wouldn't even realized it was Jesus. I, this might have happened to four or five others. They never got into the Bible simply because they didn't invite a smelly stranger to come and eat with them. They missed the big one. And so we offer hospitality. It's a core value. And you guys are some of the most hospitable people I've ever met. Some of you, you know who you are. We're continually phoning you saying, oh, we've got someone who's just turned up from Bratislava uh, with 25 greyhounds. Can you have them tonight? And you go, oh, we'd love to. We were hoping for greyhounds tonight. You know, you're the most hospitable people. It's fascinating to me that you know, Eusebius, who was a historian writing in, in, in the third century, just casually mentions that there's a little house church in a place called Emmaus, 200 years after Jesus or so. And it's almost certain, as far as I'm concerned, that that fellowship, because of course all the churches were house churches for the first 300 years, uh, that that fellowship was in the house where Jesus broke bread. I mean, if, if you're in Emmaus, the village of Emmaus, you're, where else are you going to meet? You, you, you're gonna, and you're going to come in and go, was, was this the table? And like, uh, no, no, it was that one over there. You know, and, 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 and you imagine how many times they told this story. And imagine, imagine taking communion around that table where Jesus once broke the bread and the lights went on. They were building community around relationship, around the table. You know, communion primarily belongs around the table. Uh, we, we, we take communion together here on Sundays. It was one of the reasons we say, of course, kids can take part, because this is for the family. This is for the community. It was never meant to be ritualized and removed from real life and real friendships and real homes. We are building church together around real hospitality and community and friendship. That's why collectives matter, where we meet and gather and eat together. That's why, please, if, you, if you're new to Emmaus, come along to our next welcome party, which is on the 11th of November. Uh, uh, come along. Why don't you, instead of watching the rugby uh, match this Saturday at home on your own with a pack of Doritos uh, and, and, and the cat, why don't you come to Alan House and join in and build friendships? Come to our pub lunch next Sunday. Come along to the coffee morning on Thursdays. Be the first man to come along to the coffee morning on Thursdays. Uh, uh, who else? Dave comes down. <laughs> Figures. <laughs> Is there cake there, Katie? It, it figures, yeah, okay. So, <laughs> ladies, they're not all like Dave. And <laughs> more's, the, more's the pity. Um, thirdly and finally, we're called to walk together missionally, not just prayerfully and relationally. If we just prayed a lot, talked to Jesus, and just related a lot, loved one another a lot, We'd never change the world. We're, we are on a mission. We want people to know about Jesus. We want them to discover how he changes lives. And this Emmaus story is a masterclass from Jesus himself in how to do evangelism. Firstly, notice Jesus joins them on their journey. Jesus stays in their house. He doesn't say... Um, I've got a press release. I've sent you an email. Could you come? He goes and he butts in. 
And this is such a key, it seems to me, to evangelism. That we don't spend all of our time trying to get people to come to our stuff, but we go and join in with theirs. In Emmaus, we want to try and make sure that you've got enough time to you know, uh, be, be part of sports clubs or, or book circles or knitting covens or whatever it is, you know, um, because, because we, we want to be involved in other people's lives. And now, of course, there comes a time we say, do you want to come along and hear Jay John? Who's Jay John? He's funny and he's from Cyprus and he's spoken to millions of people and, you know, it won't be boring. Uh, or do you want to come along to Alf? Of course, these things are, are great and important. But, do you know, some people will be much more inclined to come to your stuff if you've gone to theirs first. And so Jesus shows us that. He joins in with the conversation. We saw a beautiful example of this just this last Tuesday because six of our young adults, Sophie and Emma and Jess and others, have started going along to Vaughan House, which is one of the local homeless hostels, on a Tuesday night just to hang out and build friendships with some of uh, these people who, who are in, in quite a bad way. And this last Tuesday, Jess uh, Ford got talking to a guy called Jamie, and Jamie had been told he couldn't stay at Vaughan House on Tuesday night because he owes them 80 pounds. And so not unreasonably, Vaughan House has said, well, until you pay your debt, you can't stay. And he opened up about what, how he just can't possibly find 80 pounds. He'd been stupid, he shouldn't have gone into debt, but he had, and he didn't know what to do. And it was so wonderful that because Jess is part of a community, she knows that we exist for the poor, we exist for the broken, we exist for those who are messed up, she didn't go and talk to anyone or ask permission. She just looked him in the eyes and said, my church will pay your debt. And then went to the uh, Vaughan House people. We aren't stupid. We didn't give the cash to him. And we arranged it. And we paid the debt. And as a result, Vaughan House said, that's fine. And so on Tuesday night, Jamie had a bed for the night. And if you remember Tuesday, it was bucketing down with rain. And so he was in the dry and the warm because he had met a Christian who took the time to go and get involved in someone else's life. You understand, Jesus does this. He gets involved in other people's stuff. And this story shows us something very extraordinary about the Lord Jesus, which is that he speaks and disciples and reveals himself to us in ways we don't expect. We tend to think that Jesus would turn up and say, I'm Jesus, I'm kind of a big deal around here. Follow me. We probably even pray for it. God, if you could just send an angel to stand at the end of Auntie Nora's bed this Thursday, it would really help. And he just doesn't do it most of the time. A booming voice once in a while, give me a hand here. And instead we find that just as he did 2,000 years ago on the road to Emmaus, still he draws quietly alongside people. He walks with them. He talks with them. It's a very subtle approach. And so we expect Jesus to show up and say, ta-da, I'm the resurrected one. And instead he says, oh, tell me more about what you're discussing. He tiptoes, he whispers, he speaks in a still, small voice. Let me say this very clearly. For every person who encounters God dramatically on the Damascus Road with blinding lights and booming voices. There are hundreds of others 
who encounter God quietly on the Emmaus Road through a gentle dawning of the light and the quiet whisper of conversation. Some of us here, our testimony is Damascus Road. It is the booming voice. It is the divine intervention. It is the miracle. But for most of us, it's a process. That's one of the reasons that I love Alpha. I have no desire to big up one particular brand, but I tell you what I like about this is that it reflects the Emmaus Road principle of journeying slowly with people, of giving them time for conversation and question. And we see Jesus doing that. You know, the best Alpha group leaders are not those who have all the answers, but those who have all the questions. It, it's a standing joke up at HTV that Nicky Gumbel, you know, the pioneer of the Alpha course that's been done by 27 million people or something, you know, he, he never misses an Alpha, hasn't done for decades. And he and his wife, uh, Pippa, run a group. And you, you imagine if you get chosen to be in Nicky and Pippa Gumbel's group on Alpha, you must think, great, I'm going to get all the answers. You know, this is like the guy. And it's a standing joke that he never tells anyone anything. He just asks questions. So people are there going, tell me this, tell me that. And he goes, oh, that's so interesting. You know, Jesus was an alien. Gosh. Does anyone else have a view on that? Oh, you all agree? Oh, wonderful. You know, it, it's, it's questions, questions, questions. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing here. And then we have this fascinating verse that is at the heart of the story and is at the heart of the challenges we all have in evangelism. This verse that says they were kept from recognizing Jesus. Raise your hand if you have a friend, a loved one, a colleague who seems to be being kept from recognizing Jesus. Just raise your hand. Okay. It's like pretty much everyone. That's what's going on here. Why? Why does God do that? Well, the first reason, I think, is that God is more interested in questions than answers. He's more interested in process than product. He's more interested in relationships than results. And so let me give you an example. When my kids were a little bit younger, if one of them had said to me, oh, Dad, um, I'm doing my maths homework. What's three times three? And I called out from the kitchen, nine. I've helped him, but not much. A good dad will go through from the kitchen, say, come on, sit down here. Show me your book. Here, hold your pen now. And would teach him how to do three times three, right? That's good parenting. And so God doesn't just come in and say, this is the way, my way or the highway, yes or no. He comes in and walks with us and talks with us and engages in process. One missiologist has come up with this scale that shows that most people in coming to know Christ, it's not suddenly I'm a non-Christian, then I'm a Christian, but it's, it might be, maybe they move from being an atheist to being a sort of agnostic, and then they move from being agnostic to saying, I think I believe in God, but I'm not sure, is Jesus the only way? And there's this process of thinking and discussing and asking questions. And so as we seek to share our faith, don't expect all the time to help people jump from the bottom stair to the top stair in one go. What's the next step for anyone you meet as you begin to talk to them about the things of faith? What's just the next step for them on the journey? God is more interested in 
the process and in the questions and in the answers. I think the second reason why perhaps their eyes were blinded to recognize Jesus was that their thinking was wrong. Their worldview was wrong. As uh, Jews, they, they had a certain set of perceptions about what uh, the Messiah would be like. How, where he wouldn't come from Nazareth. He wouldn't bless the Romans. Uh, he, he, he certainly wouldn't die on a cross. That's a cursed death. And they knew for sure, not just as Jews, but as humans, once you're dead, you don't rise again. They had a whole set of expectations that meant that it was impossible that Jesus would be the Son of God and walking with them. And so there's been plenty of psychological studies to this day that show that our thinking affects what we see and what we perceive and what we hear. And in response to that worldview block, Jesus walks closely and he begins to take time to explain, explain the whole big story, to rewire their worldview. We live in a culture where people's worldviews mean that they probably don't believe in Jesus. It's highly materialistic, it's highly atheistic, it's highly consumerist and pluralist. And in such a culture, uh, evangelism probably is going to be a series of gentle steps. The final reason, as we draw this together, why I think that they didn't recognize Jesus was not just their worldviews were wrong, and not just that Jesus likes questions more than answers, it was that their hearts were hurting. You read the story carefully, and they talk about, we had hoped that this, but. And so there was just a disappointment. You know, disappointment can blind us from perceiving Christ. It might be that even here today, you're carrying areas of disappointment that mean that you find it very hard to perceive and receive the goodness of God in your life. We have to process disappointments appropriately. I remember uh, getting talking to a lady in a village called Barnum. And um, we managed to start talking about faith. And she's kind of shut down on me. Maybe you've experienced that sort of thing. And then she said, she said I'm not interested. And I, I just said, oh, that's such a shame. Why not? And she said to me, well, for starters, if there's a God of love, then why does he allow such terrible things to happen in the world? Kind of standard question, right? And I had some standard answers I could have given her, really impressive, kind of vaguely convincing responses to that kind of question. And apologetics do matter. It's important that we have a reason that we can give for the faith that we have. But something just checked in my spirit. And instead of just trotting out a standard answer to her standard question about why a God of love would allow suffering, I did something different. And I said, uh, tell me, why do you feel that way? Is there something terrible that's happened in your life that makes you question God's love? So he was presenting as a theological question, but it was actually a deeply personal and pastoral one. Because then her demeanor changed, and she pointed out the front door. I was standing on her doorstep at her front garden. She said a few years earlier, her little son, a toddler, had been playing in that garden. And a wall had fallen on him and he'd been killed. 
And by this stage, tears were just running down her face. And she said, so don't you tell me there's a God of love looking out for us. We were suddenly having a very different conversation. And she allowed me to pray, not just for her, but with her, as she continued to cry. I think that day she experienced a tiny bit of the love of God. Disappointments can blind us from the presence of goodness. We have to deal with them appropriately. And so I'd love the band just to come up now because I'd love us to pray for one or two people. I just wonder if there are some of us here today who know that that's a word for you, that there are disappointments you haven't properly processed. Maybe there are disappointments in relationships. Maybe there are disappointments just around the way that life is turning out. Maybe there are unanswered prayers, areas of pain that you haven't properly processed. Please hear me. Some of you here, there's great pain, but you have processed it appropriately. But for others, if we're aware, this is the kind of the big weight that we carry with us into times of worship. This is the big question that hangs over us whenever we come to uh, pray. This is, this is the question that secretly plagues us whenever anyone stands up and says, I got healed. Or God provided me a marriage partner. Or my son came back to Jesus. It's that question that undermines continually going, yeah, right, it didn't happen like that for me. We must process these areas of pain. Otherwise, they will become self-fulfilling prophecies because we will shut down on the love of God, which is the very thing our hearts most require. I wonder as well if maybe one or two of us, there's something around that beautiful word right at the start about how the Father turned his face away from Christ on the cross so that he will never have to turn his face away from us. Maybe there are people here you have been lied to, feeling that the Father has turned his face away from you. And actually, he's saying to you today, I'm never looking away from you. I love you. I can't take my eyes off you. And then thirdly, I just wondered if there are even some married couples or people in dating relationships and you've been challenged today to actually include Jesus more intentionally in your relationship in your conversation praying together walking together talking together about him there's just something about that seasoning your relationship with his presence you you find time to I don't know talk about boring stuff you know, the school run or to snog if you're dating, obviously not if you're married. Uh, to, you know, you, you, find, you find time to argue, but you, you realized we're not finding time, just the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's just a gentle invitation from the one who draws alongside and wants to enter into your conversations. Would you create a few more landing pads for me when you drive together and you walk together? And you walk around the block last thing at night when you switch off the TV. Would you make a little more space for me? So let's just stand together, shall we?
One of the reasons why we so often invite people to come forward to receive prayer is precisely because of what we see of Jesus in this story. That he waits to be invited. He comes and says, what are you talking about? There's a little nudge, there's a little wink, and some of you have received that even this morning. A sense of a prompt from him, but he'll carry on down the road unless you invite him in. He'll move on from the conversation unless you say, haven't you heard? Come and join us. And so there is something in the act of responding that is our simple way of saying, Jesus, step in and speak. Jesus, draw alongside and walk with me. Jesus, come and sit around my table with me. And it is in the walking and talking and sharing of bread that we receive and perceive Jesus Christ resurrected in our midst. So Lord Jesus, I ask that you would come now and you would just draw alongside us. <laughs> We've called ourselves Emmaus after this story. And so we ask you to come and join us in our conversation. We ask you to come and speak to us. We ask you to come and minister to our hearts. Open the truths of the scriptures. Break bread with us. Come into our homes afresh. Come into our relationships afresh. Teach us to pray afresh. Not just about the big stuff, but the small stuff. Make us witnesses to your presence. Amen.